0: This is so unfair. That's not fair. I don't deserve this. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we thought that? How many times have we said that? Because uh, people from all different ages... At various times and in varying degrees, we've all thought that, we've all said that, right? And any parent has heard that multiple, multiple times. And I know you guys think that uh, we have, you know, perfect kids, uh, because that's what every pastor's kid is, right? You guys think that, I know. But uh, amazingly, we hear that too. Uh, Yeah, I know that that just blows your mind that, that we would hear that in our home. But we do. That's not fair. Why is life so unfair? We hear that from time to time. And a couple years ago, I sat down with our oldest, Aubrey, because uh, that became like this, this habit that she, she just frequently said that. And so I said, well, you know, Aubrey, actually, it's a really good thing that life's not fair. And she, she looked at me and she said, Dad, you've lost it. You know, I, I get that look a lot, too. And... Uh, you know Dad, you've lost it. What, in the, what do you mean it's good that life's not fair? And um, we talked a little bit about what I meant by that, which you'll hear today. Um, but you know especially here in our American culture, um, it's very, very easy to have that mindset, isn't it? To have the mindset and the expectation that uh, that everything has to be 100% fair as we define fairness, right? And as long as it is, as long as things are going really, really well for us, and as long as things match what we expect as fairness to, to happen, when that happens, everything goes great. You know, it's like uh, we, we feel like we're being treated fairly, things are going well, we're getting what we think we deserve, and it's like, Everything is awesome, right? We're good. As long as I feel like I'm getting the fair end of the deal, I'm good. Everything is awesome. But the moment that we feel like things aren't done fairly, the moment that, that our expectation Or, our our personal standard of fairness, when life doesn't match up to that, when life affects things differently, when life doesn't meet our expectations of fairness, which happens, you know, pretty much like constantly, (laughs) when that happens, instead of everything is awesome, it goes to everything is awful, right? Everything just comes crashing down in our mind and our heart, and, and we, we start to, to just feel that, that bitterness rise up, and we don't like the feeling of, of not being treated fairly. None of us do. We don't like the feeling of, of not getting what we feel we're entitled to, or not having people react to us the way we feel that we deserve to be treated, and, and, it, and it's true for everyone. It's not just a kid thing. It's a human thing. We're all about fairness, and we're also all about unfairness in the opposite way. As with most things in life, though, church, as in most things in life, our concept of fairness is really all about perspective. It's all about perspective. My dad used to say, frequently just about all the time i haven't heard him say this in a long time but he used to say whenever anyone would come up to him and ask him how his day was how his day was going he would say well every day out of hell is a good day and they would just kind of look at it for a second like "Uh, okay (laughs) sure ed you know he would say that frequently every day out of hell is a good day and they'd kind of walk away and then they'd be like oh yeah yeah he loved to, to do that, not only to uh, convey some truth in that little statement, but also he, he just loved to mess with people. That's just my dad. Um, our own Hamlet Smith, if you have been around him at all or know him or talked to him at any length, if you ask him, "Hey, Hamlet, how you doing?" The one phrase out of his mouth every time in response to that question is, "Better than I deserve." And some people, he gets them on that too. They just kind of look at him for a second. Hamlet's used to that reaction of people looking at him puzzled. But um, you know, he, he'll say better than I deserve just about every time. And and what's wrapped up in those statements, both by my dad and Hamlet, respectively, uh, what's wrapped up in that is the realization that the more we learn and understand about grace. The more we learn and understand about that, the more our perspective on life gets altered by it. The more we learn and understand about grace, the more our, our our perspective in all of life gets altered by our understanding of grace. That's what happens. That's what my dad was really conveying. Every day out of hell is a good day. What did he mean by that? I am Full of the grace of God. God's grace has covered me. God's grace is constantly given to me. So every day what I deserve doesn't happen. Because every day I deserve hell. That's what my dad was, was really conveying in that statement. And yet I'm not there. So every day that I'm not in hell where I deserve to be, it's a great day no matter what is going on in the day. That's what my dad's perspective was there. And that's what he was trying to convey. And that's really what Hamlet is saying too. Hamlet's saying, you know what? I know who I am. I know what I am. I know naturally speaking, I'm nothing but a vile sinner before a holy God. Therefore, I deserve judgment every minute of every day. But I don't have that. Here I am walking around with the grace of God over me. So, hey, I'm doing better than I deserve. It's grace contained in both of those statements and that mindset. Because the, the, the beauty... And the power of grace for the Christian is that it makes life not fair. And that's actually a really, really good thing. The beauty of grace is that it makes life not fair. If you're in Christ, that's what you can claim. That you have a life that you don't deserve that was given to you by grace. It, It means that what is fair, what is deserved, what is earned... What is rightfully yours, what justice says should happen to you and to me, through Christ, we don't get that. So what is fair before a holy God doesn't happen to us. It's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. I want you to remember what is fair to us. What is deserved. We need to remember that. Because here's the thing. When you become a Christian, at first... All of what you were before Christ, it's very fresh in your mind. It's right there in front of you. That's still what you struggle with a lot, is, is moving away from what you were to what you are, right? When you're first saved, you really can struggle with that, depending on how early on or how late in life you were saved and what you were saved out of. And, and for some, I mean, that's a real struggle, to forget who you were and remember who you are. But here's what happens. Even in that case, the longer you go in your Christian life, there's a danger. The danger is that we can forget easily what we really deserved. What's fair to us. What should be our sentence. We can forget that. So let's, let's all remember that. What we, what we really deserve, what is fair to us. What's fair to us is what Romans 6.23, the first part, says, The Bible says this, for the wages, that's something you earn, that's something you work toward and you get as a result of what you do. That's fair. A wage is a fair result of work done for that, right? We all understand what a wage is. So for the wage of sin, the thing we all, all of us work at, work toward, the thing that saturates all of our life as human beings... For the wages of sin is death. That's the fair, logical result. That's the natural end to all the sin that you and I, all of us, choose and live in and act out every moment of every day. From the time of birth all the way through. We are born sinners. We choose sin. We act sinfully. And and the natural, logical, fair Result, all of us, for all of us, is death in response to the sin that we commit. So that's what's fair, and the reason that's fair is because of what Romans three twenty three tells us: for all, no exception, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God—that's perfection, that's sinlessness. Holiness, that's the goal, that's the mark, that's the bar that was set for all of humanity. For us to fellowship with God, for us to be right with God, for us to know God and have his love and his favor on our lives, the standard that we have to reach for that is supreme, absolute holiness, perfection, total righteousness. You want to know me, God says, here's the bar. You have to reach that. And all of us, as we see that bar, we realize, I can never make that. Because all have sin and fall short, come up short to the glory of God, which is the standard. We all miss the mark. No matter how good of a shot we are, no matter how accurate our aim in and of ourselves, every one of us will miss the mark of God's holiness and perfection. We all have that as our verdict. That's why Romans 6.23, the first part, is fair. That's what's fair to us, church. That's what's fair to us. So what's not fair then, what is unfair is the second part of Romans 6.23. Here's where it gets really good, because this is what's not fair but the gift, the gift, not the wage, that's not something you work for or earn. A gift is something you don't work for and yet receive, right? We all know what a gift is. A gift is something that someone else purchases on your behalf and gives to you freely. That's why we love birthdays. That's why we love Christmas time. That's why we love any chance we get a gift, because it's like, oh wow, I I didn't do anything for this, and yet here it is. This is All for me. Right? We love gifts. We love gifts. Romans 6, 23, the first part, what's fair for the wages of sin is death, but, but, you see that great, beautiful contrast? But the gift of God, the one who should be judging us as is fair to us, The gift of God, the one whose supreme holiness and righteousness and perfection we have violated with every breath. That God, instead of giving us judgment and punishment like He with all rights should do, instead, He gives us a gift. The gift of God. What is this gift? It's the most supreme, fantastic, matchless gift anyone could ever receive or have offered to them. Here's what the gift is: eternal life. Not eternal death, which we fairly deserve as Romans 6:23a tells us. Eternal life. That's the gift. In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's unfair and isn't it great? That's what's unfair. And thank the Lord that that we don't get what's fair through Christ. Here's what else is unfair in light of Romans 3.23, that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The next verse, though, here's what's unfair. They are justified... They, meaning us, all humanity that has fallen short of the glory of God, that is not right with God, that's outside of a right relationship, outside of a right standing with a holy, perfect God, instead of it just being left there, and that's the end of the story. Verse 24 says, They are justified freely by His grace. The very definition of grace is total undeserved favor or kindness, or merit. Something totally outside of and beyond you. Something you could never, ever deserve. That's what grace is, and that's what we're justified by. We are justified freely by His grace, by God's grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Don't ever look for any other source of redemption beyond Jesus Christ, because it's not there. He's it. He's the only one. He's what makes life unfair, and he's what makes that a very, very good thing. Now, this grace that we get from God, oh wow, it is definitely cause for great celebration. It is cause for great joy and should be a constant source of joy for us. But along with celebrating and, and embracing God's grace with excitement and joy, which I hope you do, But along with that, here's the thing, we also have to understand, church, we have to understand, we have to remember that free to us and free period are two different things. You with me? We have to understand as we're celebrating and and, and thanking God for this grace and as we're full of joy for it, and I hope you are, you need to be free full of joy. We get so passionate and excited about so much. I mean, especially like, you know, March Madness is, it has just it's ended and, and, and all that's over. But And the playoffs are starting and baseball's starting. And, and, and those of us who love sports, man, we're excited every day of the week about certain things. We get excited in a positive way when what we want is happening on the field or on the court. We get excited in a negative way when it's not. We get excited over All of these things. We get excited over our favorite TV show returning after the hiatus. We get excited over the new restaurant that's coming in. But how excited are we at God's grace? Is that a source of incredible and sustaining and perpetual joy in your life? To the point where sometimes you do just stand up and say, Woo! Or do you just like, Woo! Woo! Now, I'm not here to judge your, your emotional response. I'm just here to say it's a good thing to get excited about God's grace. It's a necessary thing for us to be full of joy over that. And as much as that's true, though, I, I want you to understand we've got to remember that free to us and free period are two different things. What I mean by that is God's grace did not come without a price. This grace that we are covered in and saturated by, this grace we are given freely and powerfully, it did not come without a price. And the reason grace is free for us to receive is because Jesus paid the cost required to be able to give it. Have you ever been in a restaurant? And and you're eating there with your family or, or whatever and, and, and you're just enjoying that meal and and then they, they give the they give the ticket, you know, what that charge what that, that meal charged what the charge for that meal is and, and that it's like good feeling gone. It's like, oh, oh wow, heartburn. Whew. And and then you you know, you get up slowly to to pay for the bill. And the person says, oh, hey, um, you don't have to pay. Your ticket's been covered. And you say, uh, come again? They say, uh, yeah, um, th- this person, they, they came up ahead of you, and they, they said they wanted to pay for your meal today. So they covered it. You're good. And you're like, good feeling back. Right? Have you ever had that happen? I'm sure you have, where you've, you've been eating, and you didn't expect For someone to pay for your meal, and you get up to pay, and you find out they did it for you. See, the reason you walk out of there and don't get chased by someone because you didn't pay is because what was free to you was not free for someone else, and they took care of the payment. That's exactly what's happened for each and every one of us, Christian. We have been given free, amazing, matchless grace We've been given complete access to what we never should have access to. We are the recipients of something that is just not fair to us to, to be recipient of. It. And, and it's because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, paid for it. And you know, I, I think for the most part that it's it's fairly easy for us to connect the cross, right? The cross, it's fairly easy for us to connect that with our salvation as a concept. I mean, uh, as you come to Christ and as you grow in Christ, you realize the cross is what made our salvation possible. I mean, I think it's fairly easy in a general sense to connect those two. But what might not be as easy to remember is that there are other significant examples of unfairness and great cost to Christ leading up to the cross. It wasn't just the cross that that was the ultimate source of unfairness to Christ on our behalf. It it happened a lot sooner than that. And there are other examples of of amazing, incredible suffering and unfairness that Christ went through, that he endured all for our sake, all for us. So I, I want us to consider that. I want us to consider some very specific areas leading up to the cross that Christ went through and endured that were unbelievably unfair and the result that that was for you and me. So, with that said, John 18:1 through 6. John 18:1 through 6. It's where I want us to start off. This is right after Christ's great high priestly prayer. In John 17 where the single greatest thing on his mind and his heart as Jesus prayed right before he went to what would be his arrest and all the events culminating after that was unity. He prayed for all of our unity. He said, Father, I want them, all that are in me, all that believe on me, all that receive my message, all Christians, basically is what he's saying, that will ever live. I want them all to be one as you and I are one. Remember that? John 17. Great, great, amazing prayer. So that's what just happened, and we pick up in John 18 with these words. After Jesus had said these things, it's after he had given final instruction to his disciples, after what he said at the Last Supper, after this great high priestly prayer, that's the after these things that he's saying. After he said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some temple police from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it you're looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When he told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Hmm. Then, I'll go ahead and go to verse 7. Then he asked them again, who is it you're looking for? (laughs) After they got back up, right? This, this passage, this, these four, sh- short few little verses here, uh, we, we read this, you know, and, and we know it, and, and around this time of year we always go back to it, and we read it, and, and I mean, maybe it evokes a powerful response into it in, in, in our hearts and our minds as we read it, but, but maybe, just maybe, it's very easy just to glance and gloss over and just keep going through the, the verses, you know, each sentence after another without really thinking about what all this means and what all is implied here. I mean, we read Judas who betrayed him was also there, right? And and we hear that and we see that on the page. But man, what does that mean? What did that mean for Christ? We've got to remember that Judas wasn't just some isolated, poorly known guy on the fringes, you know, kind of lurking in the shadows. That's what we sometimes think of Judas, I think that's what we see in our mind. But that's just not the case. Judas was part of Christ's inner circle. I mean, being with him day in, day out for 3 years. Judas participated in in all of of the life that Jesus lived and all the ministry and all the work. He participated in that. He was there. I mean goodness he, he ate with them, he slept there beside him, he journeyed with them, he talked with them. he heard the things from jesus that we don 't even have recorded. I mean, he was there. you know I think of psalm forty one nine which Jesus actually quoted in in john thirteen eighteen referring to judas 's very personal intimate betrayal, he said the, the the friend who knew me, who I knew, who I shared my bread with, has raised up his heel against me. And that was David quoting, but Jesus quoted right from David. He said, The one I knew, my my brother, my my friend, has betrayed me, has risen up against me. We've got to remember how that must have felt to Jesus, even though he knew what Ju- Judas was going to do. Jesus knew it, of course. He's fully God. He knows all things, but we have to remember too, Jesus was always fully man. And there was a human connection there. Think about that. One that you had been with day in and day out for three and a half years. He was also put into a position of, of trust as the group's treasurer, handling the, the money for their, you know, their journeys, their ministry. This was a position he abused, we know, But it's a position he still had nonetheless. John 12.6 tells us that. He was in charge of the purse and he would often steal from it. When Jesus was back at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha and he was anointed with the the very costly anointing oil that was a sign of his burial, Judas got really upset. He said, hey, what's this about? We could have sold that. It's over 300 denarii. could have given it to the poor. But what he was really saying is, man, I could, have, I could have so had that. And he got upset because he wasn't going to get some of that money. But it was still a position of trust that had been given to him. Judas was there at the Last Supper, we know, before he left to go betray Jesus. And, and, and we know from the details of Scripture, the way they were arranged, we know that John was there next to him, leaning in, on Jesus signifying that close relationship. But did you know that Judas was seated at the place of the most honored guest? That's his position around the table. And in the ancient Middle Eastern way of doing things at a banquet or a dinner, the one on the left of the host was the place of the most revered, most honored chief guest. That's where Judas was. See, this wasn't just any ordinary just guy that happened to be there. This was someone who knew Jesus well, who was known by him well, and others knew. Can you, can you feel the sting of the betrayal knowing that? Can you just feel the crushing weight that that must have been on our Savior? I mean, just from a human level. Wow. The other thing that we see here that's just absolutely amazing... Is that the soldiers coming to arrest Jesus, we hear, and we see in these, this text that, um, that he, he took a, a group of soldiers, right, a company of soldiers and some temple police? Well, what we miss is, is what literally that word that John uses here refers to, and it really is probably between 500 and 600 soldiers. 500 or 600. It's a small army that he brought, along with the temple police along with the Pharisees. <laughs> I, I mean, they were possibly expecting some sort of revolt or trouble, you know, and here's Jesus, and he just says, hey, who, who are you looking for? Who are you looking for? And when they tell him, and he says, I am he, did you catch that they, they, they stepped back and fell down? It's because of the weight of what they just heard. This wasn't just saying, yeah, I'm that guy. This was Jesus invoking the divine name of Yahweh. This was the Old Testament statement given every time God was asked who He was, specifically with the burning bush in Moses. Remember Moses said, they're not going to believe I've talked to you. Who are you? What name can I give them that they, they will know that I've talked to you, God? And he says, I am that I am. That's what you can tell them. I am the eternal one, the self-existent one, the almighty one, Yahweh. And Jesus is saying that here. This is a manifestation of His glory through His title. And at hearing it, all of that group of people, those soldiers and those Pharisees and the temple police and His betrayer, they can't stand it. And they're knocked back with the weight of it. This reminds me of what Philippians 2 says that every knee shall bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Whether by their own decision or by being forced down on the knees, at some point everyone will bow before the awesomeness of our Savior. This also reminds me of the song that we sing that says, And all the powers of darkness, you know, He Reigns is the name of the song, All the powers of darkness can't drown out a single word, and all the powers of darkness tremble at what they've just heard. That's the name of Jesus. Don't ever forget that our Savior who suffered, our Savior who is fully man, is also fully an eternal and almighty God. And Him saying, I am He, just at the mention of who He really is, the Divine One, knocked even those, those powerful people back. In church, it will always be that way. No matter what opposition comes against the name of Christ, none will be able to stand against it. Amen. But all the, the weight of this betrayal, all the pain that that must have caused, that must have already started the, the heartbreak that Jesus endured as he went through, this, was, this would have been the absolute beginning of that, just the weight of it. But that's what he, he endured. He endured betrayal, he endured arrest. All for us wasn't fair to him. The absolute extreme example of unfairness here, but he endured it anyway, all for our sake. And it wasn't just the betrayal and arrest that took place. It went from that to utter abandonment and denial. We know from other pages of Scripture that all the disciples ran, all scattered. He told them that would happen. He said that I'll be left alone. It was all to to, to fulfill prophecy. They all left. Peter follows at a distance. I want you to look at Luke chapter 22, verses 54 through 62. Luke 22, 54 through 62. After, After they've been in the garden and after the soldiers and the temple police and everybody got back up and he said, I'm he, he must have veiled himself this that time because they didn't fall down again. They picked him up. They, they took him away. Everybody left. Peter followed a, at a long, safe distance. And then we pick up in this passage, Luke 22, 54. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard there at the high priest's house and sat down together and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the firelight and looked closely at him, you know, like you do, you see the flicker of the light and you're, is that really who I think it is? Is that, is that him? Yeah, yeah, that's got to be him. That's got to be him. They looked closely at him. She said, hey, this man was with him too. This man was with Jesus too. But he denied it. woman. I don't even know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, Hey, hey, you're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with them, since he's also a Galilean. You know, basically he had one of that redneck drawl there. He just couldn't get away from that Galilean accent, you know what I mean? Galileans had a certain dialect everybody did and Galileans apparently was, was, it was pretty strong because that's really what's going on here it's like the, the speech betrays that we know he's a Galilean he's got to be he was with him we've seen him around too but Peter said man I don't know what you're talking about immediately while he was still speaking A rooster crowed. And oh, this part. oh, (laughs) Talk about a heart-rending statement. Look, Look at what this says. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. All it took was one look from Jesus. And we know that's Peter's reaction, but again, can you imagine Christ's reaction? I mean, yeah, he knew it was going to happen. He told Peter, he said, You're going to deny me, Peter. No, not I, Lord. Everybody else will. Everybody else will leave you and desert you, but not I. Never. I will never leave you. I am with you to the end. Can you bear what I'm going to bear, Peter? Yes, bring it on. Let's go. Jesus said, Oh, Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. Before the rooster crows, three times you'll deny me. Or twice you'll deny me three times. You're going to do it, it's going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. He told him it was going to happen. But yet, when it happened, I mean, do you see, do you, do you see in your mind, do you see just the pain in Christ's eyes as he looks at Peter? Knowing was going to happen, but almost, you know, maybe in a, just in a human sense, just hoping maybe, maybe it won't. Oh, not Peter. Sure, just, just not Peter. Not, not him. Not the rock. But sure enough, Peter denied just as he was told he was going to. And, and we see the rock, the rock that was Peter, starting to crumble a little bit with each denial to the point where he just completely broke in two after the third one. When Christ looked straight at him, that look of pain and anguish, oh my goodness, what that must have been. Just a searing gaze of hurt and of brokenness. So the Lord Jesus Christ, for you and for me, church, he he endured abandonment from all those that were with him. He endured denial by his chief disciple, by the rock. He endured denial, all incredibly unfair to him. And yet he went through it anyway, all for our sake. And then lastly, in Mark 14, verses 60 through 64, Mark 14, 60 through 64, we see he goes from... Betrayal and arrest to abandonment and denial to now condemnation. Condemnation. All leading up to the cross. Mark 14, verse 60 says this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. See, he's, he's been on trial illegally now. Everything about it was illegal From the format, the way it was done, the time of day that it was done, to the false witnesses, it was just truly a kangaroo court. They've been questioning him, and then this is how it ends. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus, don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer anything. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And all of you will see the Son of Man, talking about himself, or a title of him as the Messiah, seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. That was also a reference to Daniel's prophecy in the Old Testament. Then the high priest, verse 63, tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. We have the Son of God, the perfect one, the complete righteous one, the one who in John's prologue we find out came to his own, to his own people, But his own did not receive him. We see that completely culminated here. We see these groups of people who arranged it to be this way and who would then shortly bring him to Pilate where he would stand and be in front of all of the people that had just days earlier, just literally days previous had said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and who threw down their robes and palm frongs to, to honor Him, to worship Him. The crowd of people that said, He's here, the Messiah is here. We praise the Lord. And, and all of the people were in an uproar to the point where the Pharisees who were now questioning Him, the scribes and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin that was now trying Him, they had just days earlier told Him, command your people to stop praising you. That's how loud and raucous the celebration was. And in just a couple hours, that same crowd will say, crucify Him. Crucify Him. This is Jesus condemned when He did not deserve to be. Unfair. 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 And here's how we benefit, church. Here's what all of that resulted in for us. Because he did all of it for you. All of that. All that suffering and heartache and heartbreak that every one of these things would have been for him. That that betrayal, even though he knew it was going to happen. The arrest. The abandonment and denial by his own. His inner circle, even though he knew it was going to happen. The, the, The condemnation. And the judgment, even though he knew it was going to happen, it all would have still just torn his heart in two. And he endured it and did it all for you and for me. Here's how we benefit. Though we are all, every single one of us, me, you, all of us together, though we are Judas and though we are Peter, though we continually betray our Savior and Lord and continually deny Him by our choices and actions which we do every time we choose sin, though that happens for us, He does not desert us. Let that sink in. You and I desert him and we turn our back on him continually. We betray him for sin. We deny him by choosing sin as our master. And even though we do that perpetually, continually, he doesn't just say, that's it, I've had enough. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't desert us. He doesn't leave us. And the promise of Hebrews 13.5 is always true for you and I, that he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And he continually forgives and cleanses us of our sin, as 1 John 1.9 tells us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. That we're just, that means fair. He is faithful and just or fair to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise that we have from this wonderful, amazing Savior. And as a side note, this should never, knowing this should never ever make us comfortable with our sin. It should never cause us to minimize our sin at all. Please hear that. Just knowing that we have grace, knowing that we have a Savior who will never leave us, knowing that we have a Savior who will always forgive and cleanse, that does not give us license to sin. Romans six one through two says this: "What shall we sin so that grace may abound? God forbid Romans two four says, Your kindness, Lord, leads us to repentance, so it's not that we have kindness from from the Savior and from God Almighty, the Father, the Holy One. And so we think, oh, I've got all this kindness and grace coming to me. Oh, I get forgiven all the time, so I might as well just be okay. And I can can do what I want and then get it right later. No, 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 no. It's the opposite. Because we've been given grace, we should hate our sin even more. Because we have such a kind Savior, we should be constantly pursuing repentance. The fact of God's grace should, should lead us to hate and reject sin all the more. But... But again, how do we benefit? How do we really benefit from all that Christ went through and endured? Well, though we all rightly and fairly deserve to be judged, because Christ was unfairly judged in our place, those who commit their lives to Him don't have to be afraid of God's judgment or wrath. And that's such good news. Romans 8, 1-2 says this, Therefore there is now no condemnation, For those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he was condemned in our place. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And lastly, church, how we benefit from all that Christ endured here in his unfair treatment before the cross is that in all the times that we have felt betrayed, And all the times that we have felt abandoned, where no one else is for us, no one else is there for us, we're all alone. All the times that we have felt wrongly accused or judged or condemned, and we've all felt that, we've all been that there. Maybe you're here today and you feel that way. You feel utterly abandoned. You feel totally rejected. You feel judged and deserted. Maybe you feel like that. If not now, you certainly can relate to it in all of that, we have a Savior who more than anyone else can say, I understand. I can relate. I know how you feel, truly. And I can help you. Because of what He endured in that betrayal and abandonment and wrong accusation and judgment, He knows how we feel more than anybody ever will. Hebrews 4, 15-16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize, not just sympathize, but empathize. That means enter in to how you're feeling, enter into your pain and share it. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, because that's true, let us then approach God's throne of grace. There's that undeserved kindness. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, which we all have all the time. Oh, that's the Savior you and I have if you've already committed your life to him that's the savior you have and if you haven't committed your life to jesus christ today that's the savior you can have that's the savior who waits to receive you that's the savior who left heaven to come to earth for this purpose to go through all of these things to endure all of these things unfairly to give you what is unfair grace and love and favor and eternal life That's what's waiting for you today. Why would you not receive that? makes no sense. Because it's free to you. Totally. And the reason it's free to you and me is because it cost him everything. Why would we not embrace that? Pray with me, would you? No one looking around. Nobody messing with their phone or anything. Just total silence, total peace, total calmness. it really comes down to a very simple question. Have you embraced this Savior? Is Jesus Christ your Savior? Is he your Lord over all that you are and all that you do? Have you given your life to the one who gave his life for you? Simple question. And I would love to love to see you take advantage of that incredible free gift today that stands there waiting for you to receive i wonder is there anyone at all who would say no i have not received this gift yet i have not embraced this savior but i want to i need to today i want this to be the day of my salvation i want this to be the day that i know this savior this jesus is there anyone who would say yes that's me Anyone at all? Anybody? Okay. Then let me ask you this, Christian, those of you who have already committed your life to him. How is this realization of all that was unfair to Christ for your sake, how is this going to affect your perception of fairness going forward? Because you and I, you know, we have that radar when we feel we've been treated unfairly. That car pulled out in front of us at the last minute. The checkout line person, you know, they, they got right in front of us with their shopping cart. The clerk charged us too much. They forgot our items. On and on and on we can go. I mean, we recognize unfairness really quickly. How is this, though, going to even affect things like that? This unfairness that came at, to, to your Savior all for your sake? Is it going to affect the way you view fairness going forward? It should. It needs to for all of us. And I just wonder, is there anyone here that is a Christian, if you've committed your life to Jesus, He's your Savior, but maybe you're holding on to some sort of bitterness? Maybe you're holding on to some sort of wrong that's been done to you, whether it's yesterday or this morning or 10 or 20 years ago. Maybe you've just been kind of a slave to something that was done to you or done at you or something for a long time, and it's been robbing you of peace and of joy. I wonder, is there anyone here that would say, yeah, that's me, would you pray for me in that way? Anybody at all? Anybody honest enough to admit that? Well, thank you for that. It's not an easy thing to admit. Anyone else? Amen, amen. Anyone else? Okay. Listen, there are people standing in the back right now that would love to pray and talk with you, any of you, whether it's a need for salvation. You didn't have to, you know, just because you didn't raise your hand up doesn't mean you can't still talk to someone and come to Christ today. They'd love to counsel with you through the Word, go deeper. Or, Christian, if you just want somebody to counsel with you on something and pray and and talk something out, There's people standing at the back that would love to do that with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for being so good to us in in ways that we can't even fully comprehend. Thank you for grace, something that we could never deserve, something we could never earn or work for no matter what we did. Thank you for giving your grace freely to us. But Father, thank you. Thank you that The price that was attached, you did not then give us after it. After you give us grace, you don't say, okay, now let's settle up. No, Jesus Christ, your precious son, paid it all for us. Thank you for the gift of grace and for the cost that we did not have to pay for it. May that change our lives in every single way. Father, may we who have been recipients of such unfairness, may we look at fair and unfair differently. And may we also make sure that as we treat other people, as we respond to other people and, and deal with them, that, that the way we deal with them is, is a reflection of the way we have been dealt with. Help us in this, I pray. Please work in hearts and minds those who said, yeah, I, I need to let go of some things. I need to look at some things differently. I pray by your spirit you would empower them in that way. We pray all of this in Jesus' amazing name. Amen.